Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Daniel chapter number 2, I'm going to start with verse number 31 here this evening. The Bible says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest it, thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Amen. Tonight we want to continue part 4B, a great image here this evening and continue in our study. If we can pray tonight that the Lord would help us. Father, I come to you this evening. I'm asking, O Lord, you would touch our hearts and our minds afresh. I pray, O Lord, touch me, God, as a teacher. God, mark any error from my mouth. I pray, Lord, anoint my lips. God, anoint those, O Lord Jesus, that are hearers. Lord, hear this evening, God, that we'll be able to understand and digest, Lord, this word of the Lord. God, as we look again at your holy scriptures, Lord, prophetic scriptures, God, that would help us, Lord, in our time and in our day. God, we'll be grateful and thankful, Lord, for what you do. God, and what you accomplish in this place tonight, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen. Everybody say amen. 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 You may be seated tonight in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just for a quick moment of review, and I do mean hopefully quick moment of review, uh, if you will remember the, Dan, the, the image that Daniel, the dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar that he had asked in the interpretation is that the head of gold, this is what we covered last week, the head of gold, uh, that fine gold is the Babylonian Empire. Amen. Remember, it could not be any more plain than Daniel telling uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And then after that, or the breast or the chest and the arms of silver, the breast and the arms of silver, as Scripture relates, uh, we learned of last week that to be the Medo-Persian Empire uh, that, that was during that time frame. Also, the belly and the thighs, uh, that were of brass or bronze, uh, we come to learn of. And, and remember the Medo-Persian, Daniel 5, all that played out right in Daniel 5. Uh, now the, the, the belly and the thighs of brass of the Greek empire that we'll see later in Daniel. And uh, we gave some speculation concerning Alexander the Great, and some people were so excited that they remembered Alexander the Great uh, that I learned of last week. And so we're speculating Alexander the Great during his rule and reign. And then we came to the legs of iron that were uh, symbolizing of the Roman Empire. And if you remember, uh, it is not mentioned by name in the Old Testament. However, it is mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, the Roman Empire was the pyre, the empire that was in existence whenever Jesus Christ uh, was born uh, in, into this world. And as, if you'll remember, and I, you probably can see that up here, I think over here on the left, I kind of changed it a little bit. As we go down this image, there is an increase of strength and a diminishing of value that takes place. The, the metals are increasing in strength from gold to silver to brass uh, to iron. And then lastly, uh, the iron that's mixed with clay, which is uh, not something that's very strong. Uh, I, I have that arrow going all the way down, but it should not encompass the crushing stone, all right, because uh, it will be the strongest of them all, okay? But uh, as far as the image itself going down to the feet, and so it's diminishing in value in, 
in, in, in the fact that the increasing of strength is that uh, it can be seen that each, each kingdom is conquering the kingdom above it. Nebuchadnezzar starting out, but then the Medo-Persians conquered him, so evidently they, they must be stronger uh, as an army in order to conquer, in order to overcome, but they are also stronger because, if you will remember the different maps I've shown, and I'll show them again tonight, that territorially uh, they increased in size. They increased in size territorially, if you'll remember. If you, that was the Babylonian Empire. And just to give you an idea how it grows, again, if you look where the lines are for the Persian Gulf and where the lines are for Turkey up there, we'll see then as the Medo-Persian Empire took over, man, we have quite an expanse over here. The rest of Turkey is taken into consideration. And then we go a little bit further, and here is the Greek Empire. And so we're going further up over here in India, parts of Greece now is involved in all of that and then when we get to the legs of the Roman Empire it seems like maybe there's some things lost over here but boy we've really traversed some areas over here all the way up into Britain even part of the northern part of Africa so she is getting larger and larger uh, territorially uh, getting larger but she's decreasing in power or decreasing in value because if you'll remember under Nebuchadnezzar he had absolute rule no one's going to say anything uh, to the king. Uh, he can do what he wants to do. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. He can make a law and turn around and change the law. It doesn't matter. But under the Medo-Persians with the Medes and the Persians, there's a little bit of a dual rule that's going on, so it's becoming a little weaker because the more people you have per se in command, they say the weaker organization is. And so then we go from there uh, to the rule of the Greeks and under Alexander in, in particular, remember, he, he conquered the known world in about 13 years, but around age 32 or 33, he's sitting down and he's crying because there was no more worlds to conquer. And uh, he died at a young age because uh, of drinking and the fever and, and he died and he didn't have any sons to leave uh, the kingdom to, so he left it to his top Four generals, and so there's a dividing of power again among his generals. And then we come to the Roman rule, and uh, Rome seems to be, you know, having their iron fist, but they become a divided kingdom themselves. And uh, sooner or later, Rome, the Roman Empire, is not overtaken by another empire, but they basically fade away. They have some internal fallout, uh, internal dissolving uh, that takes place. And then it brings us up to the feet. Uh, that's part iron and part clay because the Bible speaks of these kings as a plurality of kings that will have rule in that day, in that hour, which we are still yet to see to come uh, completely about. Amen. And so as we travel down this image, the metals change. However, after the legs of iron, we come to the feet that the Bible says is part iron and part clay. So unlike any other kingdom, you might say, before it, the metal, the iron that is, that was found in the legs is also now continuing into the feet, yet there is something mixed with it. There is clay that is mixed with it. And again, Rome never was destroyed. Rome, the Roman Empire, was never taken over. It just fell apart. Uh, the eastern portion of the empire, they were divided west and east. The eastern portion of the empire uh, took about 1,500 years before they finally faded out. And throughout the ages, after uh, there was this fall out or this falling apart of the Roman Empire, there were several different leaders that came to try to bring it back together to try to revive it. Such people as Charlemagne or Napoleon, even Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, all these people tried to revive the old Roman Empire, but none of them truly ever succeeded in doing that. And you'll notice the iron and the clay in the feet, and particularly the feet, that in the Scripture we see that they are not described, the Bible does not describe them as a fifth kingdom. All right, we know very plainly that uh, the Roman Empire, you know, being the fourth kingdom and described as such, but this next empire, uh, the feet, the iron and the clay of the feet, is never described in the Bible particularly as the fifth kingdom. Amen. They are seemingly more so seen as an extension of the fourth kingdom because the iron that was in the legs also shows up in the feet. It's almost as an extension of the fourth kingdom. 
Now, some people call uh, the feet, the iron clay mixture, they call that the fifth empire. Some call it and have done so because we see the strength of Roman Empire still yet uh, there in the feet, but now it has the weakness, clay, actually. Clay's not very hard. Uh, you, that's the reason why potters use clay. They can mold it. It's malleable and, and pliable, and, and so they're, they're kind of weak. The Bible says in Daniel chapter number 2 and verse 43, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Amen. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Uh, some deduce that the clay may be some form of government that gives more rule to the people, more like a democracy, giving more rule to the people. Now, considering the idea of this iron and clay, something strong and something weak, you know, a lot of people consider a democracy pretty strong, but whenever you start going at the will of the people uh, rather than the concise decisiveness of a single man, uh, there can be some breakdown. I think to a certain degree we've seen that in our own country. However, uh, pinpointing this in our day, there's a German book, and I'm not going to try to say uh, its German uh, title, but translated in English, it is Our World Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, 1800 to 2000. And it stated this. It said, by the 19th century, democratic freedom prevailed in nearly all civilized countries. And by the end of World War I, freedom's cause seemed to have approached final victory. With the revolution in Russia in 1917, dictatorship rose up anew. And since then, the 20th century has been characterized by coexistence and confrontation between dictatorship and democracy. It's almost as the strong arm of rule and that of the people, or if you will, clay. Amen. And note in Scripture that the Bible doesn't just mention only the feet, mentions part clay, part iron feet, but it states particularly the toes of the feet. The Bible says in Daniel 2, verse 44, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Now, the feet part iron, part clay mentions that. And right after that, it says, in the days of these kings shall God of heaven set up a kingdom in other words you look back in our history and in our history there is no record of such a time that fits the description of the time that's part iron part clay of the feet in the image that Daniel gave unto Nebuchadnezzar and with that being said since there is not a time frame like that in our history then it's either taking place now or in our coming future this time of the feet of part iron and part clay, I believe is starting to come together, but it's not yet been totally fulfilled. Because in the day of those kings, Scripture says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Amen. And notice these kings in particular, and we'll look at this perhaps at other times throughout uh, Daniel, but these kings are, will reign simultaneously. They will not uh, be in succession, like there will be a king and then another one come after him, another one come after him, and then in the days of, because it says in the days of these kings, there's, there's not gr a great probability, maybe in the Old Testament when people lived forever, but in our day there's not a great probability that if there was one king and another succeeded him, another succeeded him, you got to the by the time you got to the 10th king, the first king would still be alive. All right? So these kings are not in succession these kings serve simultaneously in the days of these kings. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom upon the earth. According to the prophecy of Daniel, these kings will exist side by side. And notice what the scripture underlined up there says, but will not completely cleave to one another. They're going to exist together. Uh, they're going to be side by side, but they're still not going to be totally sewed out to one another. They're not going to be totally cohesive. 
And for that matter, Scripture says there will be, they will be destroyed by one sudden catastrophic blow from the stone, as it is called, that is cut without hands. Another thing we learn of this kingdom of the feet, if you will, this part iron and part clay, is that this kingdom shall be divided. It's like they will be together, but they will also still yet be divided. Uh, still yet somewhat of a disunity and a division, not adhering, not mixing uh, with one another. And all of that, folks, listen to me, them being seemingly together but still yet divided, still not just quite getting it completely together, will give nothing more but rise to the Antichrist that will bring the supposed unity that he's promised to bring, per se, amen, to the world as we know it. It just sets it up. It sets the stage for people to be accepting of that amen and since the iron is seen in the feet since the iron is seen in the feet as it was in the legs it is commonly believed then that the time of the iron and clay in the feet is a type of the revived or if restored roman empire since the iron that was in the legs seems just to extend on down to the feet it's like the old roman empire that dissolved internally that was never conquered by another empire or nation is going to come back to force and power but not in the same strength that it had before it's going to be mixed with clay all right now this is just for our understanding tonight Whenever we look at Daniel, we look at the book of Revelation, we see terms such as kingdom, we see terms as horn, we see terms as beast, we see terms of head. You see all this stuff. You know, it had seven heads and ten horns. We see all this different stuff. And you can get lost in the horns and the heads and the kingdoms and all this stuff. Kingdom, horn, beast, head, these, these terms many times are just interchangeable. They all are relating to governments or kingdoms. Whenever you see a kingdom, it's talking about, a, you see a horn, it's talking to, about a government or a kingdom. You see a head, it's talking about a government or a kingdom. You see a beast, it's talking about a government or a kingdom. They all interrelate to one another. If you will, and I'm not getting in Revelation right now, and for some folks, if you missed last week, I'm sorry, catch the podcast, all right? If you're struggling right now, all right, just catch the podcast. Uh, There's probably about an hour of it there, so just catch it. Amen. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, the Bible says, And I saw one of his heads, speaking about this terminology, as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. In Revelation 13, and I'm not getting too deep in this because we'll hit this later, but in Revelation 13, the description is of a beast that comes out of the sea, the Bible says. It has seven heads, it has ten horns and ten crowns on the horns and it's described and then verse number three that I read in your hearing follows. One of the heads, or if you will, one of the governments, one of the kingdoms, were as it were wounded to death. In other words, one of the heads, one of the governments, one of the kingdoms had the appearance that it was wounded to death. It looked like it died. Amen. However, that death wound was healed. This fits real well with the Roman Empire. It fell apart internally, never overcame by another empire, never conquered by another, but it fell apart internally, morally, spiritually fell apart. It looked as though it was dead, but it still exists then in the feet because the death wound, the appearance of the death wound is going to be healed. Everybody with me? All right. So when we go a little further, considering this, the Roman Empire was wounded per se, <laughs> all right, around somewhere around 476 AD. It's at that, around that time frame that it began to lose power as an empire, somewhere around that time frame. However, the head's healing began, if I might say, on June the 8th, 1948, uh, during what was called the Benelux Agreement. This was agreement through three small little countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, three small little countries. This, this healing, might I say, continued to take place a little further years down the road, and it was called the Roman, the Treaty of Rome that took place on March the 25th of 1957. 
And there was this Treaty of Rome that was signed by the above three countries and three other countries known as Belgium, uh, or rather known as France and Italy and West Germany. All right? Now, just the Treaty of Rome. Just stay with me. Interestingly, in 1948, the year 1948, Israel was rebirthed as a nation. Israel got her nationality back in 1948. In that same year, 1948, that first agreement was signed to these three countries, and then in 57, three more added to it. After 1948, or during 1948, I might say, Europe started to come more and more together as a united federation. Amen. They did it for economy purposes. They did it for trade purposes. They did it for security reasons. And this treaty of Rome that I spoke of has developed through the ages from then until now. It's developed through the ages to become what we now know as the European Economic Community or other words for it, European Common Market or the European Union. Has anybody ever heard of those? No? You should watch the news sometimes or read a newspaper or read a world news or, or something that's sake. That Treaty of Rome back in 57, but before that, 1948, starting with those three countries, started this 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 ball effect until now uh, we know them more than likely they're called a, a lot of times the european union someone say amen now i want to preface what i'm about ready to do here for the next few moments okay because the next few minutes of information i'm going to share with you is simply just a possibility an option to consider of what the feet of iron and clay could possibly be because it's still in front of us it's still something to come about i can give you options i'm not going to stand up here and say i'm a know-it-all and that's the one it is well you feel bold enough to do that you go and do that in the privacy of your own house but i don't feel bold enough to do that these are things that are unfulfilled but sometimes we can see things develop that start to line up a little bit with what may be or what could be and so that's the way in which i'm going to present it okay everybody all right with that (laughs) All right, the Roman Empire once occupied portions of the territory of Europe that has now revived as the European Union, this confederacy called the European Union. And the reviving of Europe together, after it fell apart under the Roman Empire, this reviving of coming back together, they decided that when they came back together, they were not going to revive it by force. Because they had already went through World War I and World War II and seen that fighting didn't really solve a whole lot of stuff. And so they weren't going to come together by force. And so they desired, it was unsuccessful doing anything by force, we're going to come back together. The reviving is going to take place through the vehicle of peace, through the vehicle of unity. And so what's interesting today the European Union covers much of the same territory as the old Roman Empire. Now, this is the old Roman Empire that I showed to you earlier. You see where it's landscape. You have to pay attention because the next map is, is different from this as far as how it's laid out. But, but you, you see where the Roman Empire is. This is today currently the European Union. Now, let me back up again. Draw your attention. You see where Turkey is. You see up here in Britain, Spain, all right? Uh, right in here below Germany the the modern day European Union you see Turkey right Spain France up in Britain some all the way up in Iceland up here in Norway and all these over in here where the the uh, uh, Poland and such and such are what I'm saying is there is a lot of overlap between the now day European Union and what was the old Roman Empire a good portion of the old empire is revived by virtue of the present-day European Union. Now, I present to you this evening this. This is the L.A. Examiner, October 29, 1971, and it said, the British, it's talking about the year when the British joined the European Union, said the British decision to join the common market has brought Western Europe to the threshold of its strongest alliance since the nations were tied together as part of the Roman Empire 15 centuries ago. Now, just bear with me. I know, I know the past few weeks have been very informational, all right, but 
Uh, it's just, it's part of prophecy, okay? Um, if you were to go, the European Union has a website. It's right there before you. That is their website. If you were to go there, uh, there's a few excerpts I would like to share from their own website, all right, with you this evening. Interestingly, though, if you were to go to that website right now, you plug it in, and someone's going to get out their cell phone, do it. I don't care if you do. But if you were to do that right now and you were to go there, the first thing that you would be approached with when you came to the website would be a page where you would have to choose from 24 different languages. 24 different languages that are represented by it has 28 members uh, present. So 24 different languages of 28 different country members. And here's what's amazing to me. Think with me here for a moment. They are aspiring for oneness, yet in many respects, their languages are still diverse. Think for a moment. Nimrod started this first kingdom back in Genesis called Babel and the tongues were confused and they've not yet been able to unify what God confused from the beginning for this humanistic system alright this is from their website the EU is European Union the European Union is unique economic political partnership between 28 countries European countries that together cover much of the continent another quote says the idea being that countries who trade with one another become economically interdependent and so more likely to avoid conflict amen as a matter of fact whenever you read their page the European Union really started as an economic union but it was later developed into a political union I quote from Paul Steen, December 1971, who at the time was the president of said union. He said, make no mistake, we are not an economic group. We are political. This is important, folks. The, the, the site also says, these are several quotes, everything that it does is founded on treaties voluntarily and democratically agreed by all member countries. Everything they do is by treaties and voluntarily, amen, and democratically. What are you talking about democratically? The rule of the people. What are you talking about? I'm talking about clay. Someone listening to me right now. The EU has delivered, listen, this is what they boast. We've delivered half a century of peace, stability, and prosperity. Helped raise living standards. Launched a single European currency called the euro. You ever heard of the euro dollar? The euro dollar is greater value than our American dollar right now. Amen. And they can use this euro dollar between the 28 different countries. You, you know, used to, you would have a, a franc and different, different types of money for France and, and different one for Portugal and different one for Rome. You had different currency. Not now because of this European Union. There's just the euro dollar. You can go to any of those 28 countries and have money. Don't have to worry about exchanging money because we have a oneness of money now. It's the euro dollar. You can use it at any of these countries that you go to. Thanks to the abolition of border controls between uh, European Union countries, people can travel freely throughout most of the continent. Again, used to, before this, if you were to go to one of these different countries, you'd have to have a passport, you'd have to pass customs. Not today. You can enter any of these 28 countries without going through customs, without having a passport for the other because they have this coalition between each other that we're all a part of the same union. You do not have to pass through customs when traveling between these 28 member states of the union as it stands. And they state as it continues to grow, the European Union remains focused on making its governing institutions more transparent. And again, look, that word democratic. So I ask you here this evening, could the European Union possibly be this confederation of kings that are in existence at the second coming of Christ, the feet of part clay and part iron? I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe not. Could they be the ones that would yield themselves to the rule of the Antichrist? Maybe so. They have one currency. You can travel across their uh, lines without any headache. Uh, if you will, this is the driving point for me in consideration. Consider this statement from over 50 years ago this is from paul henry spack circa 1957-1960 he was the secretary general of, of nato which is the military power for the european union 
He was also the founding father, one of the founding fathers of the European Union. And he said, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people, to lift us out of the economic morass in which we are sinking. Send us such a man and be he God or the devil. We will receive him. founding father this European Union says just give us a man that's sufficient that can take care of our economic woe and all these other things and have everything in alignment and send him whether he be God or the devil and we'll receive him in more recent years Jack Lang a former member of the European Parliament with the European Parliament is kind of a similarity would be like being a member of our Congress it's kind of the Congress for the European Union the European Parliament is. In more recent days, he said, the European Union needs a single figure at the helm. Well, you say, I'm trying not to make too much guessing out of this, but what that could be pointing towards is them just waiting for someone, an antichrist, with the answer, with the rule, to devise what's needed with their economic crisis, their border crisis, their, 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 their church crisis, all this other, a single figure. That's what they're even asking for. And they might just get exactly what they asked for. So we'll discuss some other details perhaps about this possibility because there's a whole lot of other interesting things concerning the European Union. And if you want to do some homework, go on and start looking into it and uh, you'll find some things. But we'll get to maybe other details as we go along the way because, again, we can't just unfold everything at once. (laughs) Trying to unfold it as it comes along as Daniel had it unfold. And so we'll discuss some of that again. So I want you, though, absolutely to consider that as an option. But another option you might consider is the United Nations. Amen. And just real quickly, if we could just consider a few things, consider the oneness, or if you will, the one world order of the United Nations and what it's associated with. The United Nations is the parent organization of the World Bank Group, consisting of these agencies. The International Monetary Fund, established in 1944. The International Financial Corporation, begun in 1956. And the International Development Association, founded in 1960. Uh, the United Nation also has a world court that's all otherwise known as the International Court of Justice. Amen. Created by the Charter of the United Nations in 1945. Now, at present, the, the decisions, it would seem, of the, of the world court are not always honored. We've seen that just in recent days uh, with Syria. All right? Uh, they're not always honored but as the United Nations and their military grows stronger the actions of the courts going to become more binding because they'll have a military power that will be able to enforce it not only that they're part of the international health system there it's uh, you have HMO they have WHO which is the World Health Organization what that stands for so that and just real quickly that's another prospect or another possibility that you might want to consider or look at here this evening Amen? Now, no, I got the rock down there. I got question marks at it. We're at the crushing rock stage of things. This is still yet in our future. Note that the stone strikes the feet that are part iron and part clay. Okay? So therefore, in order for the stone to strike the kingdom of the toes and the feet of iron and clay, then that has to be in existence. The stone's not striking until that's in existence because that's where the stone strikes. All right, there is not going to be any premature second coming of the Lord. Whenever I speak of second coming, I'm talking about when he comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. I'm not talking about the rapture. All right, the rapture takes place before he comes back and sets up his kingdom upon the earth. All right, but he's not going to do that until this system of the feet of part arm, part clay is in existence because that's where the stone strikes. Well, who or what is this stone? Anybody got any ideas? Who or what is this stone? Let's look at a few verses of Scripture that just speaks in things, and this is just a few. There's many. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. The Bible also says in Ephesians 2.20 and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. 
Luke chapter 20 and verse 17, and he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone, which the, this is Jesus speaking, which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. In verse 18, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to power. In other words, whatever falls on this stone shall be broken, but on whatever this stone falls, it'll be ground to power powder notice the stone that comes in Daniel chapter number two and hits this image remember it pulverizes the image all the metals and it is as chaff of a summer threshing floor ground if you will to powder if I made tonight and I think I can say pretty confidently that this stone is Jesus Christ this stone is he and his kingdom now most images, whether they be of God or whether they be of gold, silver, or wood, most images, we read through scriptures, most images involve the hands of men. The only way that there's an image is because a man's hand was involved in creating the image. All right? The image, as most images, involve the hands of men. But in contradistinction to that, here is a stone that is cut without hands. There's an image that usually involves the hands of men. But here comes a stone in the future that is without hands. Without hands because it's not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. A heavenly kingdom that will be established on the earth at the time uh, when the completion even of the Lord's prayer will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible says that that stone that will come and pulverize and destroy all these other kingdoms before it and hit particularly the feet that's part clay and part iron, this stone will become a mountain. Amen. This stone will become a mountain. That kingdom that will be established will be what you and I have through the ages of study to be the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever he'll reign on the earth for a thousand years and then he will establish a permanent kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth, a man will be there for all eternity. All right? The Bible says in Daniel 2 and verse number 44, in the days, I'll back to this verse, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. He will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Look at the last phrase. It shall stand forever you remember the prophecy of Isaiah 9 and 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty God the everlasting father the prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, I must caution us tonight because there are some that would speculate that the stone has already struck with Jesus' first coming. But again, when the stone strikes these kingdoms, it will be as the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the Bible said, if you'll note again in verse number 35 of Daniel 2, that there was no place was found for them, or in other words, there was no trace of them. So when the stone strikes, it destroys the kingdom, and there is no trace of them. They do no longer exist, not even in fragments. Someone understand what I'm saying? In other words, if the stone has struck, why are there still traces of this humanistic system that's still in our day if it already struck at Jesus' first coming? Why do we still see some of these things of Nimrod's kingdom and all this pride and all this defiance? And Why do we still see that if it already struck? Because it hasn't. When the stone strikes, it'll pulverize all the other kingdoms, including the one it hits, the one that's part iron, part clay, the feet. There will be no place found for them. There will be no trace of them. All right? So... For that matter, then again, we look at where is then the, hyster the historical reference for the time frame for the feet of iron and clay. We don't have it. Now consider, John the Baptist, the precursor to Jesus, he told the people, prior to Jesus coming, he told the people, he said, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. That's what he told them. And then it was because whenever Jesus came into the world, upon the earth, he was deemed as a king. And wherever the king is, there is a kingdom. All right? I think that's pretty simple. Wherever there is a king, there is a kingdom. But in the harmony of the Gospels, Pilate asked Jesus at different places. He asked him through his trial. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would respond, thou sayest that I am. The Bible says in John 18, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? He's speaking to Jesus. Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Why is your kingdom not of this world, Jesus? Because he has a kingdom that's heavenly for now. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, everybody say at that moment, but now is my kingdom not from hence. It's heavenly. Right now, I'm the king and I'm walking among you, but right now my kingdom is not of this world. It's not right here now at this moment. Verse number 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? And look, here he is. Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He says, Are you a king? He says, Thou sayest that I am a king. Now, I don't know if you remember this. It's been uh, some time ago, but in a message, I think it was, I alluded to the fact, or, or maybe made mention of the fact, that... The reason why people had such a hard time with Jesus whenever he was born is because during the time of the Roman Empire's first emperor, Caesar Augustus, during the time of their first emperor, Jesus was born. This is still yet a relatively young empire, the Roman Empire. And so for someone to be born and now they're calling him king, all they got to do is look at their history. Nebuchadnezzar was overtaken by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians are overtaken by Greece. Greece is overtaken by the Roman Empire. So they're thinking somebody's going to overtake us. And so Jesus was seen as a threat because they have a young empire and they're calling him king. Amen. And that's the reason why they put a death sentence. One of the reasons, I should say, they put a death sentence upon his life when he was a child, even up into adulthood. Because this king status that he had was threatening their status. Now we understand. The Bible says, remember Herod and the wise men? Herod uh, sought to kill baby Jesus. Now, Herod was underneath and he was subjected to Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Herod was what was known as a vassal king which basically means that he served under the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, but he was able to have control over Judea. And he was able to have some land privileges. And in essence, he was, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews. So, see, this was a big boy problem. Whenever Jesus was born, the reason why Herod had such a bad... You, you going to take my office? You going to take my office? And so he seeks, even as Jesus is young, to kill Jesus because he didn't want anybody taking his place. Is everybody all right? He even asked them, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Why? He asked the wise men, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Why? Because I'm going to kill him. Because they're calling him the king, and particularly the king of the Jews. So that means I might be without work in a few days or a few years if this is the case. All in all, folks, this is what this says for us. We are living in the last days. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is not, this is not Babylon. We understand that. Medo-Persia has come and gone. We understand that. All right? Greece has come and gone. We understand that. Rome has come and gone. We understand that. And the only thing that has to be in existence for the stone to come is for the feet of iron and clay to be in full fruition. What are you saying, Pastor McGee? I'm telling you this. We're living somewhere around the ankles in the feet right now. What I'm saying is, I don't know when, but it could very well be any time for one of these entities that look like an option or a possibility come together just right and the church get raptured out of here. We are living in the last days. 
This is not a time to consider, should I get in church? Should I stay in church? Honey, you need to be right where you are tonight. We are living in the last days. You said, well, they said they was living the last days in the New Testament. They were. They were during the Roman Empire. That's not too far away. That's not too far away from one other kingdom arising. So one thing is certain of all this that we learned, we're living in the last days. I admonish you, Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of our sleep, for now is our salvation. You're talking about Holy Ghost? No. Part of your salvation was receiving the Holy Ghost. The rest of your saving is when he catches the church out of here. Your salvation is nearer than when we believe. When you first got saved, your salvation or the catching way of the church is nearer now than what it was then. We are living in the last days. Hallelujah. It could be any day. It could be any day. And I don't know every dynamic that has to come into play. I know what scripture tells me, but I don't know every dynamic. I don't know the exact entity that it will be, but it will be. If you'll consider just for a moment, I'm almost getting excited. Look at this, if you will. During the, in the Babylonian Empire, remember, Daniel was sharing this with Nebuchadnezzar. This is his dream. This is the interpretation. Remember, if you can, Nebuchadnezzar's chief god, according to the archaeologists who have found a lot of things about that time, Nebuchadnezzar's time in the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar's chief god was the god that he called Bel Murdoch. Remember Murdoch? You remember me saying that? It's kind of a weird thing, so you kind of latch on to it. Now, Bill Murdoch, that they found in archaeology, had also another very special name, and his name was Shadurabu. It's almost like Dumont Yuan. Shadurabu, Shadurabu. Now, do you know what Shadurabu means? It means, listen to me, the great mountain. See, for Nebuchadnezzar, Shadurabu, Rabu, Shadurabu, Bel Murdoch, if you will, for Nebuchadnezzar was the great mountain. But when Daniel said, there's a stone that's going to be cut without hands, that's going to strike the feet of this image, and it's going to destroy the iron, the clay, the iron, the brass, the silver, the gold, even your old kingdom and fragments of it through the other kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar. And that stone is going to become a great mountain that fills the earth. You know what that spelled to, Nicodemus, or to Nebuchadnezzar? Rather, Daniel was saying, your God's been replaced. Nebuchadnezzar says, Shabdu, Rabdu, great mountain. Daniel says, uh-uh, my God. Great mountain, your God replaced. Ah. Notice verse number 45. There is no questioning in this, folks. You can read down through there. Let's just do it just for the sake of it. I still got time. For as much as thou sawest that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold. It's all these kingdoms of the earth. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar what shall come to pass hereafter. Listen, folks, it was good for Nebi and it's good for us. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. God's not changing his mind on this stuff. It's certain and it is sure. In other words, it is trustworthy, it's reliable. It's dependable. It will happen. It will take place. Someone say amen. Now in the closing verses of Daniel 2, and yes, we are coming to the close of Daniel 2. We're still in Daniel 2, if anybody wanted to know. In the closing verses of Daniel 2, you'll read... 
verses like 46 through 49, and I am not going to read them, but I, 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 I encourage you to do so, that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the God of Daniel. He speaks how Daniel's God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets, and see us what could us reveal this secret. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the God of Daniel. I like the way that Charles Swindoll put it. He said, a sleeping king, Nebuchadnezzar, meets the king who doesn't sleep. I like that. He said, the sleeping king met the king who does not sleep. And the Bible depicts that Nebuchadnezzar falls down before Daniel. All right? This, if I can, let me portray it a little better. Nebuchadnezzar, who Daniel, through the interpretation of the dream, said, you are the head of gold. Someone listening to him. Nebuchadnezzar falls down before Daniel, or if you will, the head of gold, the beginning of all this Gentile dominion, kneels down prostrate before a descendant of Judah, Daniel. Look at this. I think it's foreshadowing something for New Testament Scripture. Romans 14, 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. In Philippians 2.10, the scripture goes on speaking of this bowing, that it will be a bowing of things that are in heaven, things that are in the earth, things that are under the earth. What is that? That's total dominion. Someone say total dominion. Total dominion. Amazingly then, if you just consider, amazingly then, what's happening between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel is a foreshadowing, in my opinion, for the future prostration, bowing, if you will, of the world powers before our Messiah and his kingdom, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, I won't hold you much longer, but it's the holiday season, so I, what I'm throwing out right now is just something to ponder, okay? This has no answer to it as far as I know, but it's just for pondering. It's good every once in a while just to think, all right? Tis the season. So we enter the Christmas season, and so here's this little tidbit. Daniel, after this occurrence of the dream and the interpretation, was given command and appointment over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, there is no way of knowing in the New Testament if the wise men that sought Jesus was Babylonian astrologers or just astrologers in general. All right? All right? But they are described as coming from the east to Jerusalem. Babylon is east of Jerusalem. This is just a pondering, okay? Something you can think about while you read your Christmas story this season. Could it be that these wise men were Babylonians and had through the ages acquired an interest in the Jewish king because, Bishop, somewhere in their history they had a Jewish exile by the name of Daniel that had been governor over their ancestors and even prophesied of the coming Messiah and Daniel 9 among all of them. Now listen, folks, I don't know if Daniel's influence helped spawn the arrival of these wise men in the New Testament hundreds of years later seeking the king of the Jews, but I do think it's just interesting to ponder. So I leave you with that pondering. If you'll stand with me this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's F-A-C-M-C. Thank you, and have a blessed day.